This is Talkback, 721-1290 or 1-800-568-5309. This is News Talk KGVO, AM 1290 and 98.3 FM, KGVO. Missoula's News and Weather Station. Hey, welcome, welcome, ladies and gentlemen. It is the Thursday edition of Talk Back This Morning, brought to you by, and I love saying that, brought to you by Brooklyn Bagel and Bakery. For all of your New York favorites, they have locks, New York cheesecake, cannolis, delicious bagels, sandwiches. Brooklyn Bagel on North Reserve. With, and with your KGVO app, you can win a big box of bagels once a week. Also brought to you by Phillips Janitorial, offering residential and commercial cleaning. No job is too big or small for Phillips. We'll give them a call today, 260-6617. The views and opinions expressed on TalkBack are not those of the staff, management, or advertisers. Okay, we are thrilled to have a special guest here in our studio, special guests in our studio this morning. Uh, Drew Peterson is with us right now as a senior vice president of corporate communications for TDS Telecommunications. Now, we've been hearing about this uh, in the news the last couple of weeks. So, first of all, welcome. Welcome to our studio. Glad you're here, sir. Peter, Nick, thank you. You Thank bet. you for the interest. So tell us about TDS. What are what are you and what do you do? Yeah, so TDS is a company that's been in business for 54 years. We operate uh, video, voice, and high-speed internet uh, in 32 states. Uh, we serve about 1.2 million customer connections. And in Montana, we've announced and have plans to build fiber optics uh, in a number of cities, about six to be uh, precise. We're currently building in Billings. We've been underway for about nine months created about 45 jobs. Uh, we announced on Tuesday, we had the lieutenant governor with us uh, for our ribbon cutting uh, in Helena. We were in Butte yesterday where we started construction on Monday. And we're thrilled to be here in Missoula where we actually are, 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 are pleased to have Governor Gianforte join us today at 1130 for our groundbreaking here. Now, this is going to be at your corporate headquarters? Is uh, this right? is at our warehouse. warehouse so okay. once we right. get rolling, we start with our warehouse, which has all of our fiber optic cabling, and then it'll have all the electronics to make the network smart. Uh, then we'll have a retail sales office, uh, and then we'll have a, a, a marketing office, too. So, yeah, we're, 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 we're leasing up some real estate. Now, now, you know that our governor is a high-tech guy, right? He sure is. He came from the high-tech world. And uh, so I'm sure that you and he will, will will just have all sorts of things to talk about. Yeah, when we were talking off the air, I said we were here in Billings in September. I was doing radio interviews, and everywhere that I went, the governor was either right before me or right after me. And that's where we made our first introduction. And we were talking about how much capital spending TDS is going to make with our own private capital in Montana, upwards of over $125 million. That really piqued his interest. Yeah. And we've kept in contact since. Uh, and, you know, his whole build back Montana plan and cutting red tape is, I think, really taking off. Uh, and so we're thrilled. We're thrilled that he's joining us today. Now, now the reason, obviously, you're coming to Missoula because we're one of one of the main cities in Montana. But are you are you also going to be once you're established in the in the larger communities? Are you going to be branching out to some of the other areas, like in the Bitterroot and uh, up in Mineral County, things like that? Peter, I get this question every time that we're here, <laughs> and, and and it's really stunning. Now, I would tell you, our lineage, TDS's lineage, is basically serving rural and suburban areas across cool. the country. We serve 900 small and medium-sized communities. We actually serve the bottom of the Grand Canyon, islands off the coast of Maine and Michigan, so we certainly know rural. In the case of Montana, I was surprised to learn that over a third of Montana residents have less than stellar internet in rural areas. This is a vexing problem. Our plan is to build out the communities that I mentioned, Billings, Butte, Helena, Missoula, Lolo, 
uh, and Great Falls and really cement ourselves in all of those municipalities where we're literally billed to every home and residence within those city limits. But we're talking with government leaders, trying to figure out, is there a way, a role that TDS could play once we're established, mm-hmm. because we know the industry, to help get more broadband, fiber broadband, out to those rural areas. By the way, the phone lines are open at 721-1290. This is a talk show. So if you would like to talk with Drew Peterson, uh, he's here to visit with you. We've got a set of headphones waiting for him. So maybe if you're looking for a position or, or wondering how you could uh, be a part of this organization, this is uh, a, a very good time to, to stop and ask about this. One of the things that I've been dealing with, or or, uh, the folks at the Missoula College have been dealing with for a long time now, is trying to get young people involved in in high-tech events such as this. And so uh, are you working, do you have plans of working with the University of Montana and with the Missoula College and all those folks out there because of this high-tech emphasis? Certainly. And, and, you know, one of the things that we should really spend a couple of minutes talking about is we are creating jobs in Montana that are exciting next generation jobs, right? So we've been in Billings for nine months, created 45 jobs. We have 25 jobs currently available in the state of Montana for some of the other communities that we're, we're headed towards. So I would encourage folks, this is a shameless plug, <laughs> go, go to tdsfiber.com backslash careers. And those folks who are interested in getting into the high tech next generation fiber business, um, this is a great opportunity for you. Now, if, if you wouldn't mind describing what some of those jobs are, because we hear we hear the high tech, we hear the, the fiber network, and sometimes it just kind of goes right over our head. Yeah. Does that mean I can I can get faster internet? I mean, uh, basically, that's where we stop. But l- let's talk about... Well, let's start with, yeah. I mean, I think fundamentally what yeah. we're bringing to Montana with this over $125 million investment is some of the fastest speed fiber internet in the country. It'll be 8 gig symmetrical. So that's as fast as it is up as it is down, um, order of magnitude change for consumers. And we're not going to be the only game in town, right? We've got some fierce competitors in the area. Powerful is choice, right? When we bring competition to a new area, uh, we just see tremendous excitement and demand for that. And I think you're going you're, you're gonna to really see TDS be everywhere in the community. We are, it's in our fabric and our DNA to be a community investor so we made contribution uh, in Helen on Tuesday. We'll be making a charitable contribution this morning. And uh, I think you can anticipate that uh, TDS is going to be making a name for itself. Well, we do have a talk show going here. And we, we have uh, Jeff on the line that wants to visit with you. So, uh, yeah, uh, we have about two minutes before we take a break. So, Jeff, good morning. You're on with Drew Peterson. Go ahead, sir. Hey, good morning. Uh, fascinating on this because uh, I had a brief involvement with this up here on the reservation in, in uh, Lake County. And, um, you, you know, of course, that it's referred to as the last mile problem. It's really easy to get the uh, backbones laid down, but it's trying to get out that last mile or so to the, to the uh, people who really need it. And as a matter of fact, we just didn't get our fiber out to our little subdivision until 2018 because we were laying fiber all up and down Highway 93. Um, so what is what do you think the solution is in a sparsely dented, uh, sparsely, dented, sparsely uh, inhabited uh, density to uh, getting that, that saturation out to the people who need it when you might be looking at onesies and twosies? 
Yeah, that's a great question, Jeff. And I think, you know, you're going to see one of the benefits of broadband. It's one of the only bipartisan issues that there is in the country right now. But there's uniform agreement in Washington that for those customers that didn't have broadband yesterday, predominantly in rural, sparsely populated areas, as Jeff mentioned, they need it tomorrow. And so sometimes when the economics don't make sense, there is a a way that you can do a public-private partnership, right? The infrastructure bill in Washington has $42 billion set aside for broadband. And Montana, being the rural state that it is, is going to be uh, accessing a ton of that money. So I think what folks have to do is figure out providers that are in their areas. They need to partner with their local governments, and they need to file applications, you know, to try and overcome that economic challenge. Because uh, having reliable Internet, as we found during the pandemic, is, is absolutely critical, right? People were working from home, studying from home. And, and, and if you don't have that, you're not only missing out on getting yourself sort of society equalized, you're not participating in the economy. And it's the biggest challenge that folks that don't have reliable Internet deal with every day. So you don't think that 5G and Starlink and those solutions are going to Yeah, you know, uh, with with all due respect, um, satellite is very expensive to the consumer. Um, You got to pay setup charges, and it's expensive every month. And you have data usage caps, which we don't have, um, and and that becomes an economic issue for folks. And then, as it relates to five G, remember the old commercial? Can you hear me now? You know, in rural areas, oftentimes the answer is resoundingly no. And so I think that's why there's got to be this public-private strategy to try and get fiberized broadband out to those rural areas. And I'll tell you, it's just remarkably expensive. It costs the same whether you've got 10 houses on the street or two. Jeff, we're up against a break, my friend. Thanks so much for the call. We're going to come right back with Skip. And our guest in the studio is Drew Peterson, Senior Vice President, Corporate Communications at TDS Telecommunications. Uh, back with more right after this. Now's- okay, men, this is your time. Maybe you didn't choose this, but you're here now. You're going to go out there and be an all-star caregiver. It's up to you. So what are you going to do? You're going to go grocery shopping, cook, clean, be there emotionally and physically. You're going to dig deeper. Drive them to physical therapy, doctor's appointments. Don't you forget about the pharmacy. No, you won't. Because that's what caregivers do. Don't give up. Don't ever give up. This is your time to show the world, your family, and yourself that you're tougher than tough. Now go out there be the best caregiver this world has ever seen. Caregiving is tougher than tough. Find the care guides you need at aarp.org slash caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. I'm Ben Affleck, and I want to thank you for joining me and supporting Paralyzed Veterans of America. I joined the Navy to serve my country while parachuting with my platoon. My parachute didn't open, but I broke my neck. Thanks to PVA, paralyzed veterans are getting specialized medical care and treatments, the jobs they want, and the accessible vehicles and homes they need. I just don't think my family would be as happy as they are without the support that I received from Paralyzed Veterans of America. Learn more at PVA.org. 
Okay, we are back on Talkback. 721-1290 is our number. Our guest in studio is Drew Peterson, Senior Vice President, Corporate Communications of TDS Telecommunications, setting up shop here in Montana now. And Skip is with us. Skip, good morning. You're on with uh, with Drew. Go ahead. Good morning, Peter. And good morning, Drew. Good morning. Uh, I, 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 it's not a subject that I'm adept at. But I, I, I want to pull something together here. I, uh, my senator uh, in Bitterroot here is Jason Ellsworth, who is the president of the Senate. And I know he's been uh, talking about broadband for a couple of years. He's, he really cares about getting it out there, especially in rural areas, I believe. So I'm wondering, is there, is there any bills in our legislative session that, that uh, you can uh, advise us? to to um, help our representatives decide to go up or down on that will that will help uh, that will help uh, something like this you know get distributed in Montana and and it, you know, my guess is your mind is thinking right now about some stuff that you might be able to tell us about because we're only halfway through the session right. and anything yep. that you would have as a bill that we need to be aware of would have to go through appropriations so it can still in fact be put in right so i'll just leave it there and leave right. it off yeah, the thanks phone. for the skip. question skip thanks yeah. for the call go ahead well and i would say senator ellsworth has been a, a leader i think there was a broadband task force in montana perhaps the last session and really trying to shine a light on the challenges the disparity between those who have broadband and those who don't. I'm not familiar with any bills moving through the Montana legislature right now. Um, I think a lot of folks across the country are paying very close attention to how the federal dollars from the infrastructure fund are going to be funded. There will be an allocation by state, and Montana will benefit. You know, it's a square state, and it's got a lot of open territory. And so I think the expectation is you'll see state leaders working with their federal delegation to try and first make sure that the federal broadband map is accurate, right? Because one thing we want to do is protect taxpayers' money. We don't want to be building networks where people already have broadband. You want to build it where they don't. And so I think there's going to be an opportunity for collaboration. As I said, you know, this is one of the few issues that can bring bipartisan agreement. Um, But again, you know, anybody that doesn't have broadband in rural areas is incredibly passionate about it, and they talk to their elected representatives. And those folks want to make a difference. And I think, again, you're going to see activity in the legislature, but I do think you're going to see a lot of folks working with the Montana Utility Commission to make sure we get the map right, and then you get dedicated funds out there. And, of course, this stuff takes time, right, to build a network. As we're going to build in in Missoula, will take us two to three years, right? It's going to cost us over $30 million. We're going to go to 35,000 homes and businesses. We literally go down every street every thoroughfare into the subdivision. And so, you know, that is a complex construction project. But when you're done, you're going to have a smart city. So that was a long answer, Skip, but I hope it was helpful. Well, I will I will say, too, that Montana uh, poses a challenge in two ways. First of all, we have a small population and we have an enormous, we're, we're the fourth biggest landmass uh, state in, in, in the United States. So that's got to be a challenge for you as well. It does. And this is the Rocky Mountain West, right? And so, you know, your, your very, your soil, your topography is very difficult to build in. And so you also have a ton of aerial plant, right? So we're fortunate we're working with Northwestern Energy so we can connect onto their poles in many, many instances throughout the markets that we're building. 
Uh, and then the rest of it will be buried underground when you're in subdivisions like that. But, yes, absolutely. Getting the network built out there is um, is the biggest challenge. And I think earlier it might have been Jeff who said, you know, it's easy to get transport lines going between cities. But when you're going to do the kind of extensive build that we're doing, uh, it, it, it just uh, it takes time, it takes money, and it takes uh, a patience. You know, we're not perfect, but when we're done, this is going to be an incredible game changer for these communities. So how long do you think it would take, Drew, uh, if everything goes right, if, if there are no, no hang-ups, no uh, technical problems, whatever, how long do you think it would take you to complete your dream for what you want to happen in Montana? Yeah, so we're thinking two to three years at all the cities that I mentioned, right? And uh, it's a very methodical build. We go neighborhood by neighborhood. And what's cool is you go to our website, tdsfiber.com, you can put in your address, you can register your interest, and then we'll continue to keep you informed about when we're going to be going to through your subdivision. Uh, and we don't wait until the entire network is built to then turn up customers. We turn them up in a very incremental way which customers love, right? So right. help is on the way. Right. I think you'll start. I mean, we started in Billings nine months ago. We have over a 1,000 customers there. Uh, so we're making great progress. And, you know, I will tell you, again, choice is powerful, right? When you come to the market as a new competitor, our prices are going to be pocketbook friendly. We have not only the fastest Internet you're going to see in the nation, we have a very sophisticated video product to compete with your traditional cable providers. Right. And we've been in the digital voice business for 50-plus years. We're going to take a quick commercial break, and we have Lynn, who's waiting to visit with you. Uh, phone lines are open as well. It's 721-1290. You want to talk with Drew Peterson. This is fascinating and really exciting stuff. So he's here in town to meet with the governor a little later on this morning, and we'll talk about that as well before we wrap things up. Kick off St. Patrick's Victor deployed for the first time to Afghanistan in 2003. At 4 in the morning, my phone rang. They said, I regret to inform you that your husband was wounded in action. Victor sustained a moderate traumatic brain injury. I was doing school full time, and I was also then caring for Victor. One of the most important elements of caregiving is taking care of yourself. I just didn't want to forget that I also had goals and that I also had a life. What I did is I challenged Victor to meet me halfway. There are almost 6 million military and veteran caregivers across the nation. We have our own journey, and we can fulfill that journey at the same time that we are helping our loved one. Visit aarp.org caregiving for a free military veteran's guide to navigate your caregiving journey and better care for your loved one and yourself. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Chris Jackamick, I served in the United States Air Force and I deployed three times. So in 2017, I was serving as an Air Force First Sergeant. Our motto in that role is my job is people, everyone is my business. But unfortunately in that year, I would lose my own brother, Lance Corporal Adam Jackamick, to suicide. The majority of veteran suicides are from guns. I store my weapons securely, not only for myself, but for my family. Store all your guns securely. Help stop suicide. My service never stops. Brought to you by N Family Fire and the Ad Council. Yeah, we are back on Talkback. Drew Peterson joining us this morning. He is the, uh, the Senior Vice President of Corporate Communications. So nobody but the top are right here to talk about what's going on with uh, with their business. Let's get Lynn on the line. Lynn, good morning. You're on with, uh, with Drew. Go ahead, please. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm actually the uh, owner-operator of one of the small uh, wireless internet service providers in the area, uh, Revali Broadband. And I just wanted to say it's nice to see some competition in the area, you know, uh, something that's going to bring some some other options to uh, 
a lot of people in these remote areas, it's really tough out there um, trying to get, you know, real broadband out to people. So it's it's nice to see that. And, uh, you know, I welcome the challenge of, of competing with each other. So thank you. All Thank right. you, Lynn. <laughs> that's, yep. I that's mean, the th- call. there is a real healthy, friendly competition. I always say people benefit from a competitive choice, whether they take the new provider or not. Right? It's going to lower prices. It's going to improve services. It makes everybody better. Um, but I will also tell you that people really, really value it when a company that comes in. As I said, we've been in business for fifty-four years. We're going to be a long-term operator here. Now, what, what, what was the impetus that you said you've been in business for 54 years now? Did it take that long for, for, for you to be able to gather enough capital and enough experience to say, okay, it's time to go further out, further in uh, to places like sure. Montana, Idaho, places like that? Yeah, so we're an amalgamation of a, a, a 120 small telephone companies that we acquired over the course of that period of time. And what we brought to them was efficiencies, right, from a health care perspective, accounting, human resources, government relations. And we just kept building the, the, the portfolio, if you will. Back in 2013, we started buying some cable companies out in the, uh, in the southeast and uh, the Pacific Northwest. And the view was, let's be the best broadband provider we can be in any one of our chosen markets, regardless of technology, which is highly unusual. You're usually on one side or the other, right? But what we learned from that is how the business works from a cable perspective and from a wireline perspective. And then ultimately, what we've what we found over the last five years with this new fiber optic builds in new markets for us where we're not in the existing market is that choice is super powerful. And when you go into that community and build that, after we're done, within 12 to 16 months, we usually have 40% market share. Wow. It's great. And it's, you know, I always tell folks, we are blessed. We are in the one business where it is just constantly evolving. We have about two and a half minutes here before we have to let you go. So let, let's go over what you'll be doing today. What is your schedule? You're meeting with the governor, all sorts of folks today. Yeah, so we've been all over the state. As I mentioned, Tuesday we are in Helena with the lieutenant governor for a uh, ribbon cutting that we had at our new warehouse. Yesterday we were in Butte, and today we're in Missoula. So at 1130, we've got a ribbon cutting at our warehouse here, which is at 9912 Gary Moore Lane, kind of just outside, closer to the airport. Uh, yep, the governor will be there. The mayor will be there. Uh, we're making a donation to a charity, which I'll withhold till we make it this afternoon. Uh, but really, it's just a celebration of the fact that we're coming to town. And, and as I mentioned, we happened to run into the governor back in September, and we've stayed in touch. And this was an opportunity. He's in town uh, and wanted to be a part of this. And, you know, I think the the value that we bring to the equation is this is all private capital that's coming into Montana. We're going to create jobs here. But I would also remind folks, you know, when we bring in our national construction partners, they create a whole host of jobs and economic development. They're staying in hotels. They're eating in restaurants. They're getting their laundry done. It is a it is an ecosystem that we're going to build here. And then I would just finally say, Peter, you know, we're not perfect. Be patient with us. Uh, we will over communicate when we're building uh, and understand that when this is complete. It'll be a total game changer for Missoula. Because I, I know one of the things that obviously a company like yours, you want to be a good citizen of whatever community you're a part of. And so one, once you're established, then you can begin to look out and see, okay, this 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 uh, particular uh, charity needs some help. This particular school needs some help. And these are things that you can do with your capital. We're doing it already, right? right. I had coffee this morning with the Missoula Economic Partnership. Uh, we're a member and an investor. We're making charitable contributions here today. You're going to see our brand, our logo, 
all over the place. And that's in our fabric. It's in our DNA, right? It's a family-owned company. We're publicly traded, but giving back to the communities that we, we live, work, and serve is key. How long before the people in Missoula can say, I'm calling, I'm signing up? What, what, what I mean, how long do you expect, expect yeah. it might take? Well, uh, we put pressure on our construction teams <laughs> all the time. Uh, the sooner we get service addresses, the better right. off we are. I would right. say by the end of uh, summer, you, you'll expect to see customers getting turned up. Uh, and it'll be a continuous pace after that, right? It'll just keep marching along. Um, and we do pay attention to where people sign up and pre-sign uh, and, and express their interest. So, and, and we'll be, you know, deploying direct sales folks to get into the neighborhoods to to meet with folks and and and, and you know educate them on our products. In the last minute, how do we sign up? Uh, if you want to get uh, on the ground floor here, let's... you bet. We we use our we use our uh, technology to our to our, to our benefit. So go to tdsfiber.com, and then you'll be able to enter your address. And at that point, you'll be able to see kind of what our rate structures look like, the speeds that we're talking about, you right. know, as up to eight, eight gig, you'll see what our TV product looks like. Um, and you can essentially express your interest. And then we'll continue to keep in touch with you as we iterate through this. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming. And uh, it's nice to have the have the boss here in the studio. We well, really... it's our pleasure. I really appreciate mm-hmm. the interest. And uh, we look forward to being here for an awfully long time. Anything we can do to help you, please let us know. Certainly All right. Will. Thank, Thank you, you, Drew. Say hello to, to, to Greg for us, if you would. All yes, right. He's a, he's a good friend of this program as well. All right. We're going to come right back after the top of the hour, and we'll have the Montana World Affairs Council on the radio coming up right after this. Weather brought for eight. Before I was adopted, I felt alone. After spending years in foster care, Lexi worried that she and her brother were too old to be adopted. Thankfully, the siblings were adopted with help from the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption. I love teenagers. To see how brave Lexi was and how she opened herself up to being in a family, all of a sudden, she's holding my hand and calling me mom. It was really special. Every child, no matter their age, deserves to grow up in a safe, permanent home. Children at every age experience challenges. Teenagers are more complex than young children, but in the best ways. You're never too old for family. Learn how you can help children still waiting to be adopted from foster care at DaveThomasFoundation.org. When it comes to making plans, you are the best. What about those round trips that you plan in advance, which are perfect on your way there and perfect on your way back? Or those meetings with friends for which you make a group chat three months before so that nobody or anything is missing. Or your daughter's first birthday party. You planned it with such dedication that instead of the first, it felt like our quince's. The same way you plan each detail for those moments. Start planning to protect you and your loved ones from a natural disaster. Sign up for local weather and emergency alerts. Prepare an emergency kit and make a family communications plan. Protecting your family is the best plan you can make. Get started at ready.gov slash plan. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council.
This is Talkback, 721-1290 or 1-800-568-5309. This is News Talk KGVO, AM 1290 and 98.3 FM, KGVO. Missoula's news and weather station. Hey, welcome back, everybody. It's hour number two of Talk Back, brought to you by our friends over at Phillips Janitora, where they offer residential and commercial cleaning. Now, no job is too big or small. Whether it's a big house, little house, little business, big business, give them a call. Get a free estimate at 260-6617. Also brought to you by Brooklyn Bagel and Bakery, where you'll find authentic New York-style bagels and pastries from Little Italy right here in Missoula, out on North Reserve. The views and opinions expressed on TalkBack are not those of the staff, management, or advertisers. Okay, we are shifting gears big time, and uh, joining us here in the studio right now, we have Bob Seidenschwartz of the Montana World Affairs Council on the radio, and our adventure historian... Did I get it right? You got it right. Adventure historian uh, Peter Stark joining us here. It's good to see you again. Yeah, great to see you, Peter. All right. So I I, I told you I'd bring my Charles Russell, my Ch- Charlie Russell book. I'm very impressed that, <laughs> that, that Peter's grandmother was, you know, a, a, a sidekick of Charlie Russell or at least says she knew him. She said she, she, said she knew him. That's yeah, so, so wild. There you go. Yeah. Anyway. But anyway, gentlemen, let's uh, let's. Hey, take- uh, good morning, Nick, Peter. And, oh, we, uh, we want to talk about what happened with your contest. Yeah, yeah. For the folks that have been listening for the last twelve, thirteen years, is that long, Peter? Mm-hmm. Yes, something like that. Yeah. You know my association with the Montana World Affairs Council, and our signature, our signature event, is the World Quest Competition, which Ambassador Mark Johnson started fourteen, fifteen years ago. We had three school, three schools participating at the Davidson Honors College. Yesterday, excuse me, Monday and Tuesday. 400 students from across the state came to the University of Montana and participated in the World Quest competition. It is now the largest in the entire United States in terms of the amount of students participating. And I can't say enough for Executive Director Chris Heaslip and Nikki Geisler to see the work that they do organizationally. Nikki should be in D.C. We wouldn't have budget problems. Uh, Really, she is just a force in nature, and I can't say uh, enough thank you and gratitude to both of them. One of the most compelling moments, and this is the world today, imagine the entire auditorium filled with these students, and on the screen is a young high school student from Ukraine speaking to our Montana kids wow. live. And yeah. that was a very not only moving but very powerful moment as she is sharing her experiences on a day-to-day basis of what life is like for her, her family, and her country. So it uh, really is connecting the world to Montana kids. I remember several years ago, before Zoom and all that, you had a very sophisticated way of, of hooking that type of uh, communication up. It was pretty complicated uh, where you were able to, to do that. And now with Zoom and with Facebook and Facebook oh. Live and all that, it's much easier, much more uh, um, economical to do it that way than to have to try to pay for it somehow. You know, it, it's... It's on a big movie screen. And if you think about really what was happening, this is why these countries and people globally are so interconnected now. You can't keep from them what's happening in the rest of the world. They see it. It's real time. We saw that with Ballet Beyond Borders. Uh, Ballet Beyond Borders. Uh, You know, just amazing story. So uh, we continue this journey that we're on and with our guests, uh, uh, Peter, and of course our listeners. It's just beginning, people. And, And I'm hoping some of this bleeds through to where you understand and, and can reflect upon this in terms of your own personal life as well. So thank you very much, Peter, for allowing me to share this with you. And 
let's get going because we've got some great stuff for you. So, right, well, I just want to jump yeah. in here. I, I just think it's so great that those teachers and the, all the organization and World Affairs Council can bring Montana kids into that interconnectedness. Yeah. I mean, here we are, you know. People on the coast think we're this isolated, you know, we, we still have Pony Express out here, like the cool Charlie Russell book. Right. Um, but that, that in a way, Montana can be a very cosmopolitan state because it has to look outward for a lot of the, of the, of the larger events. Absolutely. And, yeah. and so I've noticed that, that there, there can be a really outward looking component and, and interest in what's going on in other parts of the world. And it's so great to be able to really kind of crystallize that in a, in a, in an event like this. I, I met several of the teachers, one in particular from, is it Joliet or Joliet? Joliet. If you don't know where Joliet is, you gotta look it up on the map. It's somewhere <laughs> south of Billings, uh, a small town, a small school. And he was just so excited to know that these resources are out there for students, to your very point that you're making here. And what I found is in speaking to the teachers, when you talk to them about what you have now with EconoQuest and what you can offer to these kids, and it always does take money and resources, their eyes light up as well because they've been searching for something like this but didn't know it existed. So we still have a lot of work to do. But thank you for your comments. Does it does does it? I'm, I suppose it doesn't yeah. surprise you after all these years of doing this. It doesn't surprise you how brilliant and intelligent some of these kids from these smaller communities, uh, who are, uh, many of them are self educated, and are able to dive in and get all the facts that they need, and they come and they excel at a place at a, at a competition level. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I have always said, coming from uh, my region of the country. I've always been so appreciative of the Montana people and just how interconnected we are here. These are really smart, hardworking folks. And the rest of the country recognizes this. We bring the resources to them. This state will and can be a model of potential. So before we, before we jump into your adventure, uh, Peter Stark, well, we're, we're, first of all, where are we going? So when we come back from the break, we'll know where we're headed. The, my adventure of the mind is where we're going. It's what I dreamt about last night. <laughs> no. in, 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 in my case, it'd be a short trip. Yeah. But no, it's, it's about where <laughs> we're really the, the short answer is that we're we're looking at how early part, go right to it. Partisan divide started in this in this nation in like 1790s and how that manifests itself or doesn't manifest itself parallels or not parallels today. We're going to come right back. Uh, phone lines are open, by the way, 721-1290, or if you have the KGVO app, as you should, everybody should have it. Uh, you can win a box of bagels uh, by just using your uh, KGVO app. More with Peter Stark and Bob Seidenschwartz after this. Four eight Unused prescription opioid pain medicines can spell trouble. They can spell risk if taken by someone they weren't prescribed for, harm if accidentally taken by a child or pet, or overdose if they're not used as directed. Safely dispose of opioids before they can hurt your family. Find a drug take-back option such as medicine drop boxes. You may find these in your community at local pharmacies or police stations. Visit www.fda.gov slash drug disposal. And we're back on Talkback. 721-1290 is our number. Montana World Affairs Council on the radio. Peter Stark joining us in the studio along with Bob Seidenschwartz. Gentlemen, it's yours. School is in session. Okay. All right. Uh, and, and we had talked about uh, kind of this continuing history of America and what the issues are associated with the teaching of. And you came up with a brilliant idea. 
in terms of what we're going to be discussing today. So the floor is yours. Well, I, I don't know if it's a brilliant idea, and I need your I need your brilliance to to uh, highlight the idea. But basically, um, you know, in the, in the our last some of our last talks, we've been uh, yeah looking at the early history of the country, and I I was thinking like, okay, how there there's there's similar themes that we see in the very early days of the country in the founding era that are we're we're wrestling with today. I mean, you think we would have nailed these things down quite a while ago, like two and a half centuries ago, but not. I mean, there are these these dynamics and central tensions that started and, back and, then. And they're eternal. And they are eternal. Yeah. They are. I mean, you know yeah. that they and there 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 might be solutions, there might be ways to kind of t- uh, moderate them, but they they never quite disappear. So what I thought is in in my research, and again, you know, I come to this as a as a you know adventure writer historian, and just through my own research of this era, I started coming across like really surprising things, and that I didn't know about. And you know, I, you, people might learn them in school, in high school, and college. I mean, it depends on how specialized your course is, but some just jump out at me. And the one that really jumps out at me is how early the partisan divide began in this country and how we are still wrestling with that partisan divide in various manifestations in in some are the same and some are different there's some dynamics that are same there are some that are different but i thought it would be really instructive to go and look back at how that first partisan divide got rolling so so peter i want to ask you as you go through this keep in your thinking and if you need to extrapolate we're still a country that is just, we're a neophyte. And we oh, still yeah. had a lot of people. We're a baby. That, we're a baby. That's not, a lot of folks were still loyalists. They, they were not yet fully embracing this idea of this new nation and government and what it actually meant, which I have to believe doesn't just go away at the signing of the Constitution, but continues on in different ways and forms that you're going to delve into in ways that we don't even think about today. We, we don't, we, we, we sort of accept them, but don't realize how, how it was like a, you know, really like a, um, uh, an experiment. It was like a, you know, a, a Lego set and people were putting it together kind of on the fly. So the, the, the thing that I want to address specifically is, is kind of a, it'd be a good trivia question. What is the Jay Treaty? And the, like Jay, as in John Jay. And, it, it was a treaty in, in 1794, 1795, and it was between Great Britain and the United States. And now think of 1794, 1795. War is the, over. The war is over, right? right, right. But is the fighting really over? <laughs> it's not because there are a lot of things that are left unresolved and that are, are really uh, sticking volatile points. And one being that I, I know fairly well because I've been studying that, you know, the, the Western frontier, meaning like Ohio uh, at this era, that the British were supposed to vacate their forts out in the, like the Ohio Valley and around the Great Lakes. And as part of the, the settlement of the revolution, the Treaty of Paris of 1783, well, you think they did? No, they didn't want to leave. They wanted to keep their posts that they were supposed to give up. The, the boundaries were not quite clear between, I mean, in a way, very unclear in places between the U.S. And, and Canada, between the U.S. and Britain. The trade agreements were very, um, uh, hadn't been worked out and there was a lot of tension. 
And one of the ones I was just reading about this morning was that um, there had been a, a, a an arrangement in the treat in the peace after the revolution of how uh, British loyalists or you know who had gone back to Britain could get the money back that they were owed by the the American um, you know rebels and um, that. The the Americans, now the newly born Americans, were kind of saying, uh, well, we're not really going to pay much attention to that to that clause. And selective so, memory. It was selective memory. So th- there were a whole series of issues like that that still it hadn't been resolved between these two nations that had a, born, a nation being born in an empire that had been fighting. What so so what is what would the enforcement option be? Uh, if if uh, you're over here in the colonies and we don't want to abide by that, you know we've already beaten you. So why what what's the impetus for for us to uh, to honor this contract? Basically none. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was just and, thinking, and and that's what you know. I was just as I was saying, I was just kind of skimming over some stuff today about getting a little more detail about this. That that apparently what what was happening is that the that the the British creditors would go. You know, from I guess from 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 England would would approach the American, um, the newly born American courts, and say, you know, so and so down the road here owes me, you know, a, a hundred thousand pounds, and the courts would say, well, you know, the way we see it, you know, <laughs> it's it's not it's not really like a thousand pounds. I mean, maybe it's ten or you know whatever they were they were just denying the British their 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 due. And so that ended up being a big source of tension. And then what happened, this is how we get into the partisan divide part that I find so fascinating, is that that the, the, the I don't want to say the country because it's hardly that. It's just this baby, you know, idea of a country. There in the, in the, you know, the political, in Congress, there had been just the beginnings of, of sort of, Regional alignment in Congress. I, I was just and thinking the regional in the regional. You know, yeah. when you think about New England versus the South, it would be a, a really big uh, tension or, or difference. And so, this Jay Treaty, this this the, the, tr- trying to resolve these all these issues between the British and the and the and the young Americans, was coming under the name of the Jay Treaty, and it was. I think Alexander Hamilton worked out part of it, and I don't know, maybe John Jay was involved, but. But it it, it, came, it was a package of solutions, and what happened is in Congress, some factions of Congress were adamantly opposed to the Jay Treaty, and some factions were adamantly in favor of it. And guess which part? Guess how that split down? I mean, you you know you know this era's history. Yeah. So, I mean, can you tell me who, who would be who? I, I would say that it goes back again to the regionalism in terms of. What economic interests in the South were being either impacted or benefited versus what was taking place in the North? That's that's essentially the dynamic. Yeah. And and you know from high school American history, you know you hear about the the Federalists and the Jeffersonians. I, you're going to have to now. This is important. Okay, Federalists and Jeffersonians are distinct. After break type of explanations. Okay. Yes. So we'll go to break. So and we're still dealing with those people. That's right. <laughs> and yeah. The more they, the more they, things change, the more they stay yeah. the same. And you have Hamiltonians, <laughs> and you. We, we are going to come right back. By the way, the phone lines are open at seven two one twelve ninety. We'll be back after this. 
This is your captain. We are going to be experiencing some slight turbulence. Please fasten your... Oh, hold on. Just got a video of my cat. Imagine the pilot of an airplane was as confident as you are texting and driving. Seems kind of crazy when you put it like that. Visit StopTextStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. All right, the Great Divide began a long time ago. A long time so ago. So let, let's continue. Peter Stark. So we, we were just touching on, uh, before the break, that, that how this J Treaty, which is supposed to resolve all these outstanding differences post-revolution between the Brits and the Americans, the J Treaty was supposed to solve a bunch of these. And yet in Congress, suddenly there emerges this kind of ferocious split between those members who are deeply in favor, adamantly in favor of the Jay Treaty, and those who are adamantly opposed to the Jay Treaty. And that becomes the beginning of, you know, those, you know, high school test phrase, the, the difference, the political, two political parties, the, the Federalists and the Jeffersonians. And there, there, there are other names for the Jeffersonians, but they get kind of complicated. Um, it's easier to think of them as, as the Jeffersonians. So the Federalists basically were all for the Jay Treaty because it would, it would, um, regulate trade with, it would establish better trade, it would establish trade with Great Britain, whereas there had been all sorts of embargoes before and, um, it would establish a regular trade with Great Britain. And it would, um, it, you know, essentially strengthen the ties with Great Britain. And the Federalists were, they tend, they tended to be concentrated in the, in the coastal, in the urban areas and in the north, in New England. Um, and, and they were more, uh, of a, uh, their orientation, their economic kind of background was more towards trade. Um, Would, it, it, could you associate them with still, uh, strains of loyalists? Because if I go back to the earliest of history, the economic centers of trade, Boston and New York. Right. And these were folks that were British in origin yeah. and uh, by birth, by training and everything else. So I, I could see this strain still being part of these. Not, and we have to remember, families had great power and name and reputation had great power at that time, which carried into Congress. It wasn't an open country. Right. That anybody oh, yeah, yeah. It was elected. an elite. The Congress and, was and an elitist. A very watch. elitist group, which then had the residual of these families from previous times. And, and they were, these families were aligned with Southern planters or right. big New England merchants. Exactly. The, 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 the people in Congress. And so the, the Federalists tended to be, tended to be North, tended to be urban, tended to be New England, tended to be part of the merchant Class, the progressives of today, well, the liberal they, Ivy I mean, you can, <laughs> yeah, you can, We can, you know, that argument kind of holds up, and then it sort of breaks down. <laughs> That's <a certain> right. <laughs> um, so, but yeah, you can think of it that way. And then the Jeffersonians are the the you know Thomas Jefferson was the great believer in like this you know small farmer, small landowner guy. You know, he'd be a guy, and he'd be a white guy who with a lot of slaves. Well, yeah, and he could have a lot of slaves, yeah, yeah, with a lot of slaves. Um, but who, who would be the backbone of democracy? These, you know, it, it didn't have to be a big plantation owner, but, you know, these farmers, these people close to the land who were, um, self, kind of, not self-sufficient, but they were kind of their own entities. And so the, the Jeffersonians were saying, 
God, if we do this, connect with these these uh, with the Jade Treaty, we're going to be back in the you know in the pocket of Great Britain again. We're going to have a king. These Federalists, they all want to have a king back. You know, <laughs> we can see there's. They're, we can see the deep state coming in here. <laughs> That's right. And, and, and the, we don't want to go backwards. Yeah, yeah. And the, and the Jeffersonians are saying, mm-hmm. you know, we don't want England. We they they tend to be more aligned with France, and 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 against and against Britain, and so that became this schism, and mm. it 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 as soon as you call that schism, you know, as soon as people started lining up in different camps. You can imagine what happens. It's like suddenly a rivalry breaks out politically and, you know, and then really kind of battling politically. So, so let me ask you this. Is there is there any point where you can look at what was happening back then and say, OK, today these would be the liberals. These would be the conservatives. Well, that's not, you know, and there, there are people who are way, way, way better versed in, than, right. in this than I am. Right. That you could say um, that. That the uh, you could see it, it breaks down at right, a certain level, right? right exactly. Because yeah. you, you could say, well, the Southern farmers were conservative, and the Northerners were liberal, and there's you know there's some truth to that. But then there's there are other aspects of it that are the other way but, around. But we we see those two terms totally differently than they would. Uh, oh yeah! Years oh, ago. oh yeah! Yeah! yeah. yeah. Go ahead. And, and yeah. well, and one yeah. of the here's one of the real kickers of this whole you know lay you know situation. So guess what the Jeffersonian's party name is, which is that's why I just say Jeffersonians because it's 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 called the Democratic Republican Party. <laughs> <laughs> That's not fair. <laughs> no, <laughs> make up your mind. I know. And, and and the and the so the Federalists. I mean, one way I can keep track of it. The Federalists. You know, they and this is this is actually the, the almost the main point I wanted to dwell on today in 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 the dynamics we're dealing with is that the Federalists, as their name implies, they were more interested in the central power of government, and so a central bank. And there were, and government was more of a central. I mean, federal government was a central organizing party power, and the Jeffersonians were were really opposed to that, and 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 wanted things like the states, the states to have more powerful rights, essentially than the federal but, but Peter, government. This is from the very origins to the present. Yeah, this has always been the tension of this big and amazing nation of ours. Exactly. And if, if you take away nothing but that today, to understand that nothing happening today was unusual in the history of this country. That's, I mean, that's, that's the, that, that, the, the theme that is so profound that, that was struck in, at the time of the revolution and in the, in the, in the founding era. And that, is completely alive, even more alive today. Is how do you balance the the power right. between the central authority, a central government, and and the, and the states? And in those days, the excuse me, the colonies, when they first, you know, when the revolution start, first broke out, they were like thinking like they were separate countries. They weren't. They weren't thinking like we're all one big happy family here. Right. We've all have our own very strong interests. As Virginia, as Massachusetts, as whatever. We're going to come right back, and Emmett is waiting to visit with you. We're going to come right back. Seven two one twelve ninety is our number. One eight hundred five six eight five three zero nine. Our guest in studio, Peter Stark, adventure historian, and of course Bob Seidenschwartz joining us as well. We'll be right back. 
Okay, welcome back, everybody. We are back on TalkBack, the Montana World Affairs Council on the radio. Uh, Peter Stark, adventure historian, joining us here in the studio. We're kind of stepping through trying to figure out how we got to where we are now by looking at real history here. But we do have Emmett waiting on the line right now. Emmett would like to get our callers on right away. So what's on your mind, sir? Good morning, Emmett. Well, thanks, thanks for taking my call. Well, it's interesting. I mean, obviously, there were, were political divides. And obviously, there were religious divides, the Protestants versus the Catholics. And then, of course, we went to the Civil War and the issue of slavery that cost many lives. That was a divide. Um, but I submit that the political and religious divides are so much more, well, maybe at least the political ones, are just so more intense and so much deeper now over the most basic things than they ever were back then, because back then everyone believed in God and the Bible. Now you have a whole bunch of people hating God and hating the Bible. We're debating in this country in the most unbelievable ways things that were never talked about. Everyone understood homosexuality was evil. Everyone understood abortion was infanticide. Everyone understood there is right and wrong, not moral, not moral relativism. Wait, Emma, can I interrupt everyone, you for a second here? Yeah, I mean, these are definitely really hot issues today. Um, And they they I don't think they were such hot issues back then. And um, it's not true that everybody believed in God. It's not true that everybody believed in the Bible. It's not true that everybody was on the same page about everything. And if you look at the founding fathers, quite a number of the founding fathers were were not Christians. They were decidedly not Christians. They were a, 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 a religion or a, you call it a sect, whatever. They believed in what was broadly called deism, which they, which meant they believed in God, but it was more like a, a living God in all sorts of different manifestations. But Christ was not part of the picture. So I think this assumption that, that, that people tend to make today or some people that Oh, here are these issues that we're fighting about today having to do with, with morality and, and, and religion and, uh, you know, abortion and all these hot button things today, which I mean, which are valid things to debate today. They were never settled in 1780 or 1790. They were explicitly not settled and that the, the, um, the founding fathers were that, I know of nothing in the Constitution or anywhere else that mentions Jesus Christ. You know, and I, I clearly hear what Emmett is saying, and I think he reflects a view and a and a an assumption that, if I could use that word, a lot of people do have. Which brings me to why I have somebody like Peter, and we attempt to have these conversations. Is where do you get your information from? How do you come to this point? To say this based on what? Well, I, I mean, I think that's that's why we do have this conversation. Right. So, but anyway, I think Emmett, you raise a really good point, and these are these are really divisive issues that we're dealing with today, and and they tend to be you know break down along these certain partisan lines, and so that's a, that's a good. Kind but of we connect we, those issues we're, to we're, assumptions that if we had a different viewpoint of what uh, you're just sharing right now, would our discussion today be different with still those very same discussions? Okay, so that's – and so let's let's connect what Emmett was just talking right. about with where we just were, 
with this 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 partisan divide in the breaking out in the 1790s between the Federalists, those who believe in central government authority, and the you know you can call them states rightists that they became known as that at one point, the Jeffersonians. So that would you know we could say you know if you look at our partisan divide today and some of the the issues that that um, Emmett just brings up, those that they're. There, it's kind of a package of issues that we associate with the the Jeffersonians or the the um, you know the more the more rural orientation we have today, and then there are a package of issues that we associate with a a, a more federalist or a more um, uh, urban orientation we have today. So in a way, we have these. There's still these two um, powerful dynamics in our. Our national dialogue between the states and the more rural parts of the country, and and the cities and the more uh, urban and coastal part of the country. But the arguments. Oops, sorry. Go each, ahead, Bob. But the arguments that we each make may, in terms of referencing the past, be based on false information or inaccurate information. Well, and see, that's where the partisan divide yeah. comes. You know that that we. You know, that's what's so remarkable when you really look at that and how this evolved, this partisan divide. It was like once people started suspecting that those guys are kind of getting together to figure out how to get their guys in power. And, well, I guess we better start figuring out how we're going to get our guys in power. And it just started, you know, it was just like kind of subtly choosing teams and then it sort of reminds me of kids' sports programs, you know, when when you get some coach who decides he wants to have a winning team and he, he starts, like, kind of stacking the deck Jerry and recruiting Pickett. players. Yeah. And, and, and then the other coach says, well, geez, that guy's going to do it. So am I. And pretty soon you have these kids, you know, they're going off to thousand-mile road trips to play, you know, in international competitions just to, like – you know, beef themselves up so they can duke out the other coach on the other side. Of town. And now we have NIL in college sports, where athletes uh, are name, image, image, and likeness. Yep. And, uh, <laughs> so right. the, the battle continues. We're, we're up against a break, and we have Harry is waiting very patiently. Harry, we're going to get to your call right after this. Seven two one twelve ninety is our number. We have several lines open. If you want to get out of the conversation, we'd love to have you. That's why it's just a talk show. So anyway, seven two one twelve ninety. We'll be right back. My name is Teresa Barber. I was in the United States Navy, and I served overseas in the Middle East and Africa. Early on in my career, I had a commander that taught our suicide prevention training, and the very next day, he took his own life. 90% of suicide attempts involving a gun are fatal. My way of continuing my service is to help protect my community by being a responsible gun owner and by storing firearms safely. Store all your guns securely. Help stop suicide. Brought to you by N Family Fire and the Ad Council. They were back on Talkback, and uh, it's Montana World Affairs Council on the radio. Our adventure historian Peter Stark here in in the studio, along with Bob Seidenschwartz. And we like to get our callers on as quickly as we can. So, Harry, thanks for holding. What's on your mind, sir? Hi, Harry. Good morning. Yeah, good morning. Uh, yeah, it's very fascinating. I really appreciate you being on. Uh, the I keep hearing the fiction that, well, especially from the conservative side, well, the founding fathers were all for state rights, and they were against, you know, federal, the federal government. So it's, you know, uh, reminded me of an old saying that says that those who uh, don't learn history are doomed to distort it. So, uh, you know, it's, <laughs> I that, you know it, it's really enlightening that you bring this up. Thank you. 
Yeah, yeah. Harry, thanks for the call. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a great comment. And that, that, that you know, we have to bear in mind that, you know, on both sides of that, that partisan divide back then and now, that yeah, there were many founding fathers who were, you know, hardcore Federalists, and there were many who were hardcore Jeffersons, or we could say some of each, and then there were some who were not that, that you know, that adamant. But they were certainly... They weren't all. They weren't all anti-federal government. And Peter, is it not worthy of when you talk about the Federalists? I'm thinking when Harry says, oh, you know, government. Uh, see, there are those people that believed in, in effect, big government. Or maybe that's too much of a comment to say. But when we hear people say, oh, big government, bad. But the origins of government on the Federalist side, when you were doing research in all of years of your work. What were their motivations or thinking of why they would then be in favor of a centralized government? At that time, putting in place what the economic situation was and what the social situation was, because many people still did not vote. Well, so, uh, uh, yeah, that's I mean, that's a great question. And, I, and again, you know, I'm 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 kind of winging this off the top of sure. my head as a non non you know, this is not exactly my area of expertise, but I've studied this in a kind of a backwoods way uh, 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 where I've seen the dynamic a lot. And so one of the really interesting things is the <laughs> one reason a federal government came into being was because without one, nothing was working. <laughs> and, and I mean, literally. And that's why that uh, the, the, these are roughly the dates. So the um, uh, Revolutionary War ends in 1783 you know, and meanwhile, the, the the states have got together to rebel in 1776. And then, you know, through the 1780s, it's like, okay, do we have any money? <laughs> like, they're deeply in debt. They're deeply in debt. No, but like, if you're paying somebody, you know, going to the store and buying something, so are you using like, you know, British coppers? Or are you using French francs? What, what are you using? And, okay, so... Um, how and how like a state you know you want a certain amount of money to what what do you want to run i don't know you want to build a road you want to do anything you want to have a post office you even want to have a little state house where you can meet you got to have money to do that so how are you going to raise that money so you got to figure out some taxing system and there was none of this was figured out mm-hmm. and, they, and so that was a big issue is that that there was no way to, to you know the to collect taxes the a lot of the revolution was against taxes, you know, British taxes. And now it's like, okay, well, I guess we're going to have to start thinking about how we're going to have some of our taxes of our own. Otherwise, this, this experiment's not going to work. And a key part of this that I have studied quite a lot is that there was a, um, uh, a big divide. And it, it almost wasn't even a divide. It was almost unanimous. There was a real resistance to having any kind of national standing army, and and this and this is like around you know right around the con- era of the Constitution, seventeen eighty nine, seventeen ninety, and that that people, I mean the Federalists and well there was there wasn't the partisan divide quite at that that early, but but people from all regions were saying, yeah, if we have a standing army, I mean that's what King George had. That's what the tyrants of Europe have. No, we don't want a standing army and that's, that's controlled by some central power because some guy who's not a, you know, not a democratically thinking guy could just take that, take that army and run with it and make this whole, whole place into a dictatorship. Right.
Okay, let's get it. We have Dave waiting on the line. So, Dave, good morning. You're on with Peter Stark and Bob Seidenschwartz. Go ahead, sir. Yes, good morning. I was wondering, you know, when you know when Jefferson came president, he, he went ahead and bought the Louisiana Purchase. When we were, I guess, we were in debt at the time too. It seems like that would be undemocratic republic. You know, his party. It would seem like that's that's kind of went against the the. With more for a big government, and I'm just wondering how, how they looked upon it at the time. Well, you are so right. I mean, Je- Jefferson essentially slid that one through while no one was looking, <laughs> and and you, I mean that that yeah, you can certainly argue. I mean, there's a strong argument that it was contrary to his whole principles, and I think he felt conflicted about it, but not not. But he was more overpowered by the sense that. His his westward vision overpowered any of his uh, any of his principles, and so he kind of tied himself in knots about whether he had to consult with Congress about this thing. And it, it's I, the, I can't remember exactly the permutations, but more or less what happened is that he didn't really consult with Congress. He just ran for it, and and then eventually, he, you know, it's like. Uh, better to ask for forgiveness than for permission. That's kind of what he did on that. So, yeah, you're totally right. <laughs> From the beginning of our conversations, um, uh, principles and profits seem to go hand in hand and at times are in conflict with each other. Because you point out, even with Washington, this expansion and desire for land. Oh, yeah. Oh, was, that's oh, was, overwhelming. It was overwhelming for many of the folks that had existing assets in Virginia in different places. And were so, happened to be founding fathers, right. too. And, and you have to overlay that with what was happening in the country in terms of the populations were growing on the East Coast. They were moving into the Ohio Valleys and the regions that we call the Northwest. And the next great expanse was beyond the horizon. So, you know, I say kudos to Jefferson because that, if I'm a business guy, he stole that from France. I mean, that yeah. was a hell of a deal for the return on investment. Oh yeah, I mean, it, was like, yeah it, was a great, it was a great deal, and yeah. you know there was also the whole Native American issue out there, which we we we've been in before. Exactly that was, but let's I, you know I just want to because what I really wanted to do is is connect that time yeah. and those divides to to today, and so you know Bob or Peter give or somebody call or call in give give, give us give me your thoughts on on how you see that manifesting itself today. I'll give you an example right now that we're dealing with, which is support of, on a global basis, as a result of what happens with COVID, there's been a call to deglobalize, when in fact the interests of globalization have served this country and its economic interests quite well, not without issues and problems, but that's still an argument about should we be bringing things closer to home as opposed to being involved in so many affairs overseas. When you start thinking about what those interests are, they're intimately connected between military, economic, and our political interests as well, though. So, I, you know, I, I suppose you could draw that 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 uh, federalist Jeffersonian divide that the Jeffersonians would be more isolationist, is what I what I and the federalists more international, right? Which is what you stated in the very beginning okay. of our conversation is they were deeply connected to Europe by both family and economic interests in the very beginning, still are. Okay, we're going to come right back. And if we have a one-minute timeout, that's going to be our last break before we're going to say goodbye to Peter Stark. This is a great conversation. Uh, 721-1290 is our number, 1-800-568-5309. Or if you have the KGVO app, you can message us. We'll get uh, that to Peter as well. So we'll be right back in one minute.
Creative. Hey, we're back on Talkback, and a great conversation going on right now, which is unfortunately rapidly coming to a close. Uh, Peter Stark, adventure historian, joining us here in the studio, and Bob Seidenschwartz, Nick Christensen over there, taking your phone calls. I'm Peter Christian, and Dave is back for a second try. So, Dave, what else is on your mind, sir? Hi, Dave. Yeah, I'd like, yes, I'd like to remind people that, you know, when it comes to helping countries, uh, that the French risk their fleet to protect uh, protect the, or to block uh, the British Army from rescuing Cornwallis. And without that risking of the fleet there, uh, the war would have gone on. And who knows would have won it then. So we owe a lot to the French for helping us, and we should remember that. But yeah, that's, 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 that's very true. I mean, I th- that you're t- totally right historically, and, and people forget that, that the French, you know, they they kind of bailed us out from what, could have been a long, long struggle. And Laf- Lafayette was part of that, too. Yeah, right. exactly. Principles. R- right. Principles and that, principles. Uh, when that fleet was there, it was it was very dangerous for their, their fleet. And it could have been wiped out by the British fleet, but it wasn't. So history okay. could have been a lot different. Well, thanks Thank for your call, Dave. That, that, appreciate that, it, Dave. Yeah, that's a, a good perspective. You bet. Uh, uh, Peter, d- during the break, I mentioned to you when you had asked, is there a connection from past to present? And I had said that uh, in terms of those who would be kind of internationalists versus those who would be more hey, domestic, nativist, nativist they, they, call it. And I had said that throughout our history, you've seen this isolationism rear up over and over again. And one of the principles behind that was usually immigration pressure. That, that so many people that, suddenly started coming so into the country. So many people at different times came in different waves to this country, and that had a direct impact on existing populations, economic issues, and a host of other social and religious issues as well that kind of came into the fold. So if you want to kind of just expand on that a little bit. Well, that's, yeah, I mean, you you hit it right, that there that there have been these periods of of isolationism that this that this nation kind of it almost retracts to at a certain point, whereas you know there are other periods where it's way open to to energies from from abroad, um, and a lot of its that was a lot of its founding. Obviously, it's, right. it's, it's all its founding in the sense that it wouldn't have found, been founded if there weren't all this energy from abroad. So let me let me ask you this: How did we get where we are if it was such a mess? Uh, during the founding of the country and people trying to figure out where they are, where they're going. I mean, what? how, how do you explain that? Well, it was a kind of a trial and error thing. And it, But it, we were talking a little bit early during the break. I mean, the, the, these, these framers, these founders, there were some, and they're all men, you know, there are some, re, but they had very smart wives, some, some of them who were involved diplomatically, that they are, were really smart guys, a bunch of them. And, you know, you have your Hamiltons and your Jeffersons and your Madisons and these, like Madison, I, you know, I've read a little bit more about him, that he was, you know, like, whereas, you know, George Washington, you know, the founder of the country, is this big, strong, strapping guy and, you know, can literally throw the stone across the river and whatnot and fear, scared of nothing. And he's been through all these battles. And, and Jefferson's four, like 5'1". And Jefferson's like 5'. No, and, and Hamilton's like 4'7". <laughs> <laughs> and, no, no, actually, Jefferson's pretty tall, but he's not a, like, he's not a fighting kind of guy. Right, right. And physically, unlike Washington. And, and so, and Madison's this, you know, scrawny little guy. But he's this incredible intellect and um, academic, and he has read so deeply 
in the classics and how the, you know, the, the Greeks formulated government, how the Romans did, how all these things worked, how they didn't work. He was deeply versed in how the British system worked and how it didn't work. So he was a student of history. He was a student, exactly. Yeah, I mean, that's such a good point. And so he, in a way, there were other guys doing it too, but he was a main channel of how all these earlier experiments in government had, had worked and had not worked. And so, you know, when you read the proceedings for the Constitution or the Federalist Papers, there are all these, I mean, really esoteric things about who's going to have this power to do what and what majority. And I mean, things that, you know, I can't even figure out today. <laughs> so, so. But it's uh, the documents. It's the power. The power of the and documents. The living, breathing documents that still today allow are, us to clean up these messes. Right. And, and the, and the problem with this, I mean, these brilliant as they were, they're not, you know, they don't, they don't cover everything. And there's a lot that's in the Constitution that's just left vague. I mean, a lot of things that are left vague. And so these, many of which we're wrestling with today. Emmett is back for a, we have about two minutes. Emmett, what's your question real quick? Well, again, it's not really a question. Well, maybe it is. I'll admit we had political differences and differences in history and, you know, political thought back then. Humans will always disagree. Obviously, we had deists that didn't believe in the Bible. But everyone still, um, the reason we weren't discussing homosexuality or some of these other things, we were all in agreement that there's moral right and moral wrong. No one would have gotten fired for being a Christian back then or lost their job. Nowadays, it can happen. When people committed sins that were, were, are rampant today, people were ashamed. Now they're celebrated, and you can be fired from your job or made ashamed of or be ostracized for not joining in those sins. What I'm trying to say is, yes, we had differences back then, but it wasn't near the monumental shift that we have now. Even in the 1980s... Okay, wait, hey, Emma, let me interrupt you right there. Emmett, Emmett thanks. We're, we we yeah. have like, like a minute and a half okay, left. A minute, so but I, you know, I, I just... Uh, that, this idea that everybody's on the same moral page is just not... doesn't comport with what actually happened. You know, Thomas Jefferson had a woman who was enslaved as his long-term mistress and had many kids. That was very common among that that class. Um, there are endless stories about, you know, you talk about immorality. We can go way into that package yeah. in of what these guys were up to. So it was not like Everybody's living with a you know clean sheet to their to their name, and that the reason the, there's this impression that they were is because they were pretty good at hiding this stuff and and or or they or not addressing it in public. And, and we didn't have social uh, social media to, social to reveal media. <laughs> what everybody's doing either. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Anyway, okay, we have less than a minute left. So uh, where where do you go from here, Bob? Uh, uh, okay. You know what I would say to you is one. Thank you so very much. And we had an hour today, but uh, Peter, if we're welcome back, we need to continue this conversation. Yeah, I think this because, is a good one to continue. Yeah, we're just we're just scratching the surface, laying a good foundation. Thank well, you. it's it's so fun to connect the the past to the the yeah. present, yeah. gentlemen. Thank you. Okay, uh, Mr. Nick, what's coming up on tomorrow's fabulous radio program? Uh, open phones from or no, we're not going to have open phones. We're just on from nine to ten. Uh, City Talk will be on from nine to ten. We have the hunting and fishing show. You bet. Right. You bet. I'll see you tomorrow morning at six. Yeah. Have a great day, everybody, and uh, be safe out there.